0: stopping you, 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 you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one ewtn
1: I don't understand why I have to earn salvation.
0: one 3986
2: Why do I need to
3: confess my sins to a priest?
0: What's stopping you? You, 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 you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.
3: Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Hey, if you're listening today and you yourself are not a Catholic, but you've got some questions about the Catholic faith, let's get those questions answered on today's program. Here's our phone number. 833 288 ewtn That's 833 833- 288-3986. If you're listening in today in France, well, your number is 1 and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that: ctc at EWTN.com. All right, uh, Jack Williams is our uh, call screener today. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you? You know what? I'm doing great. How are you, my friend?
4: No, I'm doing fine.
3: A little bit light on the uh, on the cruise side today because we have some weather here in Birmingham, don't we?
4: We that's something we're famous for is weather.
3: Yeah usually not like this. Not like this. We got we got some overnight uh, ice. Mainly ice was the issue uh, for a lot of folks. So uh, we're running a little bit on the light side today, but that's okay. The main reason that we're here is to do radio, and that's what we're going to do. So we're going to lead off with this email from Frank in New York, who says, Hi, Dr. Anders. My immediate family members have joined a Plymouth Brethren Chapel whose rule of faith is the Bible alone. I am well-versed in Scripture and believe they misuse the Bible as a type of manual instruction. I have also taken issue with their belief that the Catholic Church was not founded by Jesus and that the Church's origins do not date back to early Christianity." Would you be able to address what I believe to be this false notion of Bible alone and a lack of knowledge about Catholic history? Thanks and God bless, Frank.
4: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, of course, the, you you can't you you can attempt to make the Bible your rule of faith, but it's it's sort of like trying to uh, learn how to make a lemon meringue pie by consulting the user's manual on your Toyota Corolla, right? It's it's a it's a category <laughs> mistake. And, it, like, anybody with an open mind, I think, who, who doesn't have a, a, a theological axe to grind, pick up the Bible and actually examine the genre of literature that constitute the Bible. And you'll find that it doesn't present itself as anything like a rule of faith, as a sort of manual or comprehensive statement on, on Christian belief and practice. Okay. And, and uh, uh, I mean, the biggest book in the Bible are Psalms, for crying out loud, right? They, they certainly don't present a, a system of belief or a set of, of uh, moral norms or liturgical practices, right? And, and, and all of the Bible is like that. The New Testament is the Gospels. The Gospels don't really present a statement of faith as such, um, uh, they make they, they do make moral exhortation, but it's really ordered more toward the reform, the, the challenge of uh, of uh, confronting one's moral situation, and the challenge to follow Christ. And the epistles, of course, are all occasional documents written for various reasons uh, in specific contexts, so they don't present themselves as anything like the kind of comprehensive rule of faith that the Protestant world wants to make out of the Bible. But the biggest problem with the Protestant notion that the Bible is the rule of faith. The way it's usually put is something like this. They'll say, well, no doctrine can be affirmed by the Christian Church unless it can be substantiated by the express words of Scripture. That, that's it's put negatively like that. Well, as soon as you say that, you realize that the doctrine of sola scriptura fails its own test. mm because to pass the test, you'd have to have something like this. You'd have to have what you find at the beginning of the Presbyterian Westminster Confession. The Westminster Confession says, well, you know, we hold to the Word of God as our rule of faith, and here, here are the books that constitute the Word of God. And they quote from Genesis to Revelation with the Protestant canon. But there's nothing like that in the Bible. There's no place in any passage of Scripture that says, uh, you know, here are the list of biblical books you're supposed to consult, and you're supposed to consult them in this way, understanding them to be the rule of faith. That whole principle is something that's not found in the Bible itself. It's something imposed onto the Bible, basically by Martin Luther, so by human tradition, really, not from not from divine revelation. Mm-hmm. And instead of giving us the Bible alone, Jesus expressly gives us a different rule of faith. I mean, he he tells us explicitly, how do you know the content of the Christian faith? How do you know the content of the Christian moral life? He tells us explicitly. When he made provision for handing on the faith, he turned to the eleven disciples who were left to him, and he said, Go into all nations, and make disciples, and teach them everything I've commanded you, and I'll be with you to the end of the age. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Boom! There you have it. The yeah. teaching church, the rule of faith given to us by Jesus. So, the soul scripture is not in the Bible. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's inconsistent, it's incoherent, because it's, it's self-contradictory. And it, of course, contradicts the expressed teaching of Jesus about the nature of the rule of faith. It's also uh, practically unworkable because there's no no principled way from the Doctrine of Sola Scriptura to decide upon what should be held as dogma and what is uh, allowable, uh, variable opinion. Right. Yeah. Um, there's no principle. Now Protestants assert all day long. Well, my belief is dogma, and yours is just opinion. But but that's arbitrary. It's arbitrary that they do. There's no principled way to do that apart from some authoritative voice like the Roman Pontiff or the Holy Ecumenical Council.
3: Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from M. C. Doctor Anders. What are your thoughts on the context of Matthew 18:6? seems to me as though maybe he's talking about this being a mortal sin which of course could be forgiven correct why does he say that it would be better that he drown in the depths of the sea isn't final impenitence the only unforgivable sin my thanks MC
4: um yeah thanks <coughs> so uh, a couple things I would say about that first of all you're 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 reading the text as if the The negative thing to be avoided, the consequence that is worse than being drowned in the sea mm-hmm. is a negative consequence only for the one committing the sin. Mm. in other words, you know you'll be better off being drowned in the sea than committing this sin, but the text doesn't say that I mean it's the little ones who are led to sin who seem to suffer the 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 brunt of the problem here, right. Mm. So it is a horrible enormity—it is, is, is a vulgarity and a violation of the worst kind—to to deface someone else's purity and dignity, right? So yeah. better that you die than that you subject another human being to that kind of degradation. Mm. To me, that's perfectly intelligible— regardless of whether or not that sin is forgivable.
3: Okay. MC, thanks so much uh, for your question today. And we have uh, open phones for you right now. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-EWTN is that number, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this uh, rather chilly Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-3986. Call's coming in right now, 833-288-3986. Well, let me tell you about something wonderful, and that is EWTN's National Catholic Register. You know, this is uh, kind of the era of fake news. Well, you're not going to get that from the Register. It's America's most trusted Catholic news source with a comprehensive view of the world from a Catholic perspective. Give a gift subscription or subscribe for yourself. Save up to 42% right now. Visit ncregister.com today. ncregister.com. By the way, you can also receive daily, weekly, or alert emails From the register, directly to your email inbox, visit EWTN.com and click on the word subscribe, EWTN.com, click on subscribe. Here's a quick question here from Kathy before we get to the phones, and that number again, 833-288-EWTN. Kathy says, "Uh, my question is this, if the Eucharist is true... Why don't we see the apostles offering the Eucharist to anyone in Scripture, along with the blood to drink? In Acts 16, uh, verses 30 and 31, why isn't the Eucharist mentioned? Hebrews 10 says God doesn't delight in sacrifices, so why would he approve the Mass? It says they are offered for those under the law. Thanks, Kathy.
4: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So well, a few things first of all we 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 do see the eucharist celebrated in the new testament not only at the institution of course in the gospels but we learn in the book of acts that it was to hear the apostles teaching and to pray together and to and for the breaking of the bread which is a reference to the eucharistic sacrifice that the that the church came together um and then uh, and of course Saints, saint paul's first letter to the corinthians he gives the most extensive description of Christian worship, which includes the central role of the Eucharist in Christian life. But let's say for the sake of argument that you were correct and that we found no explicit description of the liturgy in the New Testament. Would we be able to conclude from that, therefore, that the liturgy was unimportant to Christian life? Uh, We would not. We would only be able to conclude that on the theory that the New Testament includes everything important you need to know about Christian life. Uh, if you were listening to the first segment of the show, you realize I just offered an extensive refutation of that idea. Catholics have always rejected the idea that the Bible is a sufficient rule of faith. It's not a sufficient rule of faith. Um, it is the teaching of the Church, so Scripture and sacred tradition as interpreted by the Magisterium, that gives us the full picture of Christian life and Christian worship. And, of course, the liturgy predates predates the New Testament by decades— so, what do you think Christians were doing from, say, thirty A.D. Uh, to, uh, you know, to the first Pauline epistle, which probably came out in the fifties, and yeah. the Gospels were composed sometime, you know, between the seventies and the nineties? Wh- what do you think Christians were actually doing with their time? <laughs> they, they weren't they weren't reading the New Testament, right? They were, in fact, celebrating the liturgy. Yeah. That's what they were. The, the The Eucharist was the context in which they in which they reflected upon and handed on. The faith. St. Paul said, I receive from the Lord uh, what I hand on to you, namely, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that was really the uh, the venue where the Christian faith was lived and practiced and understood as a liturgical context. And that's all long before the New Testament was ever written. Um, now, uh, she had another question, too. It was about why doesn't the New Testament mention this thing that it absolutely mentions? Right. What was the other
3: question? Uh, that was uh, in Acts... Well, in Acts sixteen, thirty and thirty one, why isn't the Eucharist mentioned? And then Hebrews ten says God doesn't delight ah, in yes, sacrifice.
4: Yes, 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 yes. Thank you. That was the other one. Okay, so Hebrews is very clearly, the whole book of Hebrews is very clearly about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Very clearly about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And the doctrine that God does not desire the blood. Of goats and bulls, that's not a New Testament doctrine exclusively. That's an Old Testament doctrine. I mean, God says that plenty of times in the Old Testament, especially throughout the prophets, Isaiah in particular. You know, I, I don't desire your your sacrifice and offerings, O Israel, but a uh, you know I, I want contrition and, and mm-hmm. justice. David prays in Psalm fifty one, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a contrite heart you will not despise. It's the sacrifice of uh, of uh, of one's life, of one's character, of one's concupiscence uh, that God genuinely desires. That sacrifice remains and, and is perennial. So Saint Paul says that the true form of Christian worship, this is Romans chapter twelve, verse one, is to offer our bodies in living sacrifice. And that's precisely what the Christian life consists in, is this, mm. this life of self offering. Saint Peter says, first uh, Peter chapter two that Christ died, leaving us as an example that we should do likewise. He who has made us a kingdom of priests and uh, to offer the sacrifice of our lives, so what we find in the liturgy the Christian liturgy of the sacraments is that the 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 form of Christian life is set before us in the rituals of the sacraments, so this this uh, this dying to sin and rising in with Christ is set before us in the sacrament of baptism mm-hmm. um, the, the repentance uh, and contrition and, and confession that is integral to Christian spirituality is set before us in the sacrament of penance, sacrament of reconciliation and of course that 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 total self-donation that that offering of oneself along with Christ is set before us in the holy sacrifice of the mass jesus demonstrates for us sacramentally what he wants to be made real in our interior lives and and the it is absolutely perennial the sacrifice that is always pleasing to god is that sacrifice of a contrite heart and a spirit and that total self-donation of love for god and neighbor but not the blood of goats and bulls as if, you know, God were just sure. like any other Alabamian who was only interested in barbecue. <laughs> you know, every time they open a new restaurant in Alabama, I'm like, maybe we'll finally get a vegan one. And I look and it's like, you know, Joe's barbecue joint yeah, right next to Sally's barbecue I joint. Don't,
3: I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, at least not in your lifetime, anyway. Right. Barbecued lentils? Uh, let's let's look into that. All right. Maybe we'll uh, franchise it. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Peggy in Florida. Listening on The Real Presence radio app. Hey there, Peggy. Thanks for calling. What's on your mind today?
2: Hi there. First, I want to just say how much I've learned from the show. I'm an avid listener, and I just love it. Um, I've heard Dr. Anders explain on more than one occasion to callers that uh, the host itself uh, comprises the complete Eucharist body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus, and that one then receives the full Eucharist, in the host, and doesn't need to also partake of the precious blood from the divine, from the chalice to receive the fullness of communion. Um, my question is, is the, I guess it would be the converse true, does the precious blood also contain the fullness of the Eucharist, and thus would it be possible to have a valid full communion, a partake of the Eucharist, if one only received the precious blood from the chalice and did not receive the hope
4: yes thank you i really appreciate the question so uh you are correct in in your statement that either one of the species um, is the body blood soul and divinity of jesus and for purposes of the communion rite, it is sufficient to receive in one kind now for purposes of the sacrifice and remember, the, 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 the Eucharist as a sacrifice is different from the Eucharist as a sacrament. And the Council of Trent says the difference between the two is very great. As the sacrifice, you must have both kinds. You must have both kinds in order to represent the separation of Christ's body from his blood. But when it comes to our reception of the sacrament... We need only receive in one kind—well, the laity need only receive in one kind. The yeah. priest has to, have to, has to commune in both kinds.
3: Sure. Is that helpful for you, Peggy?
2: It is. I, I, ne- I never saw anybody just partake of the precious blood and, and walk by the, you know, the offering of the, the host, but it, it occurred to me that if that was true, then one could conceivably do that. If, well, the, the, the
4: only occasion that I know of where that is the appropriate response is that there are some people— who have uh, either an allergy or an insensitivity to gluten. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the properties of wheat remain in the consecrated host, even though the substance of wheat is changed to the substance of Christ's body. The properties of wheat—the technical term would be the accidents—remain, and so a person who has a physiological reaction to wheat is going to react the same way to the consecrated host— there are people who have to refrain from frequent communion or even communion from the host at all, mm-hmm. lest they have a a, a violent reaction. Uh, those people typically, if they're practicing Catholics, would receive communion in one kind from the chalice only.
3: Peggy, thanks so much for your call. Glad you're listening there in Florida. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833 833- Two eight eight three nine eight six. 3986 Call to communion on this rather chilly Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Mike in Oklahoma, listening on Ave Maria Radio. Hey there, Mike. What's on your mind today, sir?
1: Thank you for taking my call. I teach RCI, and I had somebody ask a question last night that was just amazing. If a Protestant preacher claims to be able to consecrate bread and wine into Christ's body and blood, How can we know as Catholics that God privately hasn't given him the grace to do it? And I have another question. It would be real short, if you don't mind, with that, too.
3: Sure, sure. Do you want me to say it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Go go right ahead, Mike. All
1: right. Uh, Where does the Church get that we can live our faith by faith and tradition, emphasis on tradition, or does the Church say we can uh, go by tradition?
4: Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. These two questions are deeply related. So the first question was, if a Protestant minister claims to have the power to confect the Eucharist, how do we as Catholics know that he's not telling the truth? And and couldn't God miraculously, uh, you know, in an ad hoc way, grant this Protestant minister the one-off ability to consecrate the Eucharist? Well, uh, here's why, because the consecration of the Eucharist does not happen uh, simply so that the faithful can have the body of Christ to eat, right? And, and that, that's really the Protestant problem, is they, they want to separate the act of the believer's communion from communion in the mystical body of Christ, which is the Church. But in sacred scripture, the two bodies are intimately interconnected. That, that by sinning against the mystical body, which is the Church, one makes oneself ineligible to receive the sacramental body, which is in the consecrated host. Um, the two mutually reinforce one another, right? Because it's the—St. Augustine said, Christ gave us the Church so we'd have people to do good to. The Christian life, the Christian ethic is one of charity lived in community. And the sacrament is as much the sacrament of the Church's visible unity— as it is the sacrament of the of the transubstantiated body and blood of Jesus, so mm. it would be it would be grossly um, what shall I say? It is a performative contradiction. It would be a performative contradiction on God's part uh-huh. to to uh, uh, to encourage or to permit the violation of the unity of the Church in the celebration of the sacrament of the Church's unity, right? Okay. Um, And, you know, to give a much simpler answer, uh, he said so. He said so, (laughs) right? So in divine revelation, God has revealed that only a priest who has valid orders from a bishop who is in valid apostolic succession can, in fact, confect the Eucharist. Where does the Catholic Church get the idea that we should rely upon sacred tradition um, in addition to sacred Scripture? Well, we get it from both sacred Scripture and sacred tradition, we get it, in other words, directly from Jesus, when Christ made provision for handing on the Christian faith, he never, ever, 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 ever indicated that we should consult the 66, or if you're Catholic, 73 book canon of the Bible. Like, what what Catholics and Protestants alike hold today as the Scriptures, what was not even a concept uh, at the time of the ascension of Jesus, hadn't even been mentioned. Hmm. Jesus never even mentioned it, Right um instead he made different provision for handing on the faith he told the disciples go into all nations and teach everything i have commanded you of course which was all oral tradition jesus never wrote anything down teach everything i've commanded you and i'll be with you to the end of the age so christ made a promise of divine assistance that his apostles could in fact teach orally what he commanded that is to say handing on the sacred tradition saint paul mentions that tradition explicitly in 1 Corinthians, when he says, "...the tradition that I received from the Lord I hand on to you, namely that on that night he was betrayed, he took bread, etc., etc., etc. And he gives the elements of the liturgy, which Mm -hmm. is tradition par excellence. Um, So, uh, of course, he, he tells the Thessalonians, "...be sure you hold fast to the traditions that you receive from me, those in writing as well as those came orally." And then, uh, and then, New Testament ecclesiology also makes provision for the passing on of that charge to subsequent generations. Paul says to Titus, "The reason I left you in Crete was so that you could also appoint others to the sacred office who could teach others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera." So, Scripture is explicit about the way we obtain knowledge of the faith: It's through the tradition of the church handed on by the apostles and their successors. And of course, sacred tradition tells us the same thing. Right, So from, from the sources of tradition and Scripture, we learn about tradition and Scripture as sources of divine revelation.
3: Well, there you go. Is that helpful for you?
4: As always. Thank you.
3: Well, there you go. Appreciate that. It is a call to communion with Dr. David Andrews here on EWTN Radio. Let me give you those phone numbers, because we do have a couple of openings here, and if you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program. That number, 833 288-EWTN, that's 833-288-3986. Outside of North America, your number is 1 and then 205-271-2985. And again, you can always send us an email, the address for that, ctc at EWTN.com, ctc at ewtn.com. One of the interesting uh, emails we're going to get to in the last half of the program here is from April, who has a question about why Mass, instead of a Protestant service, is necessary for Catholics and for spiritual communion. So again, if you want to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at ewtn.com. All right, in just a moment here, we're going to get back to the phones, and we will be talking with Looks like Tim in Columbus, Ohio, listing on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Again, the number 833 288 EWTN. That's 833 288 3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Still a couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders here on EWTN's called the communion. That number again, 833-288-3986. Here now is Tim in Columbus listening on St. Gabriel Radio. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Oh uh, Yes, I have a question. Um, my, I would have a question about in vitro fertilization. I know as a person we've all been taught that A soul is created at the moment of conception. But what about those who are born through in vitro?
4: Yeah, thank you. So, um, from the moment that there is a distinct zygote, uh, there is a distinct human soul.
3: Okay. Uh, Makes sense? It's pretty simple. It is. Pretty simple. And and so,
4: one way to help conceptualize this is to remember what Catholic teaching says a soul is. Most people in our culture, Catholics included, are very confused about this because they have their mind filled with images from popular culture um, wherein the soul is something that is kind of like ectoplasm mm. that squeezes into the body and maybe fits it like a glove and then you know, flies out at death— um, and I'm thinking about all of those Looney Tune cartoons when, when Sylvester the Cat, who would have nine lives and yeah. he'd get, you know, knocked in the head with a shovel and then a little sort of ethereal-looking <laughs> Sylvester with wings would float up and sit on a power line and wait for the other eight to join him. <laughs> or, or if you ever saw Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg in the movie Ghost, you know, yeah. he gets shot on the sidewalk and yeah. sees he's looking down, staring at his body, bleeding out, and there he is, this sort of doppelganger of himself, you know. <laughs> And that's, that's the image that most people have of a soul, and, uh, and the problem is that's not the Catholic doctrine of soul. The Catholic doctrine of soul in classical philosophy, which is what the Catholic Church adopts here for this understanding, a soul simply is whatever it is that causes a living thing to be alive. That, that's all the word soul means. doesn't mean ectoplasm, just means what is the principle of organization uh-huh. and intelligibility such that even a plant— What's the difference between a live plant and a dead plant? Well, a live plant has some kind of organismal integrity that permits it to function as a living organism. And, and that, whatever, however we represent that abstractly in biology, that's what we mean by the soul of a plant. Okay. Uh, same thing with an animal. Same thing with a human, with this exception, that when we look at the nature of a human being, we note that humans have a faculty that animals and plants lack, and that's rationality. mm and, and rationality puts us in touch with the immaterial in the abstract. We can yeah. represent universal concepts to ourselves that obviously transcend the particularity of matter. And so there's something about human personality, something about human consciousness that transcends the merely material. Mm-hmm. But as far as the soul is concerned, it still just is that principle of intelligibility and organization that causes a living human being to be alive. By definition, that has to exist in any living organism that is human. Yeah. Otherwise, otherwise, it wouldn't be alive. Sure. Soul just means the thing that makes it alive. But it has this added element that, in a human being, it also has this capacity for transcendence and rationality built in.
3: Tim, thanks so much for your call. Here is John in Illinois now, listening on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir?
1: Hi there. Thanks for taking my call.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it's about how the Catholic Church uses the right hand for taking holy water and getting on the right knee instead of the left. My brother asked me this, and um, I don't know if I gave a real good answer, but do you have any advice on how to respond to him? And, by the way, he, he's left-handed, so it matters to him a lot. And, by the way, he was told to use the right hand, right hand and right knee, left knee and left hand were wrong, so it really sort of sunk in.
4: Okay, Funked yeah, in. thanks. I appreciate the question. So, uh, first of all, as far as your brother's uh, left-handedness is concerned, that has absolutely no spiritual relevance whatsoever at all, right? And and so no one should should conceive that because they're left-handed that they are in some kind of, um, uh, to use an etymological ploy here, in a sinister relationship, sinister <laughs> meaning left-handed, yeah. you know, to, to the divine mind or the divine will, far from it. In fact, I, I kind of envy our lefty friends because many times they have some... They have some right brain, left brain advantages in yeah. their creativity and so forth. And uh, I have a daughter who's left-handed, and I love the way it plays into her personality. And I mean, it's not—it's kind of a beautiful thing. Um, I don't know enough about biology to, to, to specify why most people are right-handed. And the simplest explanation, I think, for why a religious ritual is usually uh, reserved to the right hand is just because most people are right-handed. I guess Now, so. it's true that in, in some cultures, and particularly in the ancient world, um you know there's a this well, actually for that for our culture too for that matter there's a kind of inherent distrust of the abnormal of the, or the or whatever is sort of marginal to the norm is viewed with suspicion and mm-hmm. we we can find that in different cultures throughout the world with regard to handedness to ascribe spiritual significance of that of course would be a gross superstition right? And sure. we shouldn't we shouldn't go that
3: route. Okay. Appreciate that. John, thanks so much for your call. Glad you're listening to Catholic Spirit Radio in Illinois. Called to Communion here on EWTN. Here's that email that I was talking about a little earlier from April. She says, recently my dad asked why, if we go to the Baptist Church with him, we would have to also go to Mass. My 11-year-old son is also confused and asked why making a spiritual communion at the Baptist Church wouldn't be sufficient. I explained that the Mass has two parts, the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and that it's also a sacrifice even if we don't receive communion. That didn't seem to land with either of them. My dad seemed offended and even said, quote, Well, I didn't realize my church was so bad that going to it meant you'd have to go to another service or a Mass. What's the difference anyway? So how can I better explain why Mass is necessary and how I can make them understand the sacrifice part of the Mass? And again, that's from April.
4: Right, exactly. Well, you've done a pretty darn good job. You've already anticipated much of what I'm going to say. The the essential point of the Mass is not the homily, thank heavens. (laughs) Uh, It's not even the communion. It is the sacrificial ritual, and the sacrifice here, of course, is in the act of consecration, the, the bread and the wine becoming the body and blood of Christ are represented to us in a state of separation. Body over here, blood over there. What mm-hmm. happens when you separate your body from your blood? Well, you're right and truly dead. And because of that, we speak of the Mass as the memorial of Christ's death on Calvary. The Mass is where we recapitulate and present the death of Calvary, the death of Calvary, uh, in perpetuity, and the reason that Christ instituted such a rite is that book, the, 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 the whole aim and purpose of the Christian life is to imitate the sacrifice of Christ, that our lives might be conformable to His. St. Paul says offering our bodies in living sacrifice is our spiritual act of worship, most people find that difficult. I don't like to get up in the morning and go, "Gee, I can't wait to offer my body and living sacrifice today, <laughs> right and, uh, and so we need the 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 habituation of the sacraments so that what they represent to us becomes the shape and form of our life. Mm. That's really, very, very different from what happens in a Baptist service. So the, the uh, Baptist service typically contains two major parts. One would be uh, the preaching of a sermon, which does not uh, uh, articulate Catholic doctrine, the Catholic understanding of life lived in imitation of Jesus, but something very, very different. Uh, and singing, right? And singing's fine, but, you know, the purpose of Baptist singing, I think, is probably to enliven the emotions uh, and, uh, and to generate enthusiasm for the Baptist way of life. That's not what we're doing in the Catholic Church. We're not there to generate enthusiasm for the Catholic, for the Baptist way of life. We're there to conform our lives to the sacrifice of Jesus. And of course, the Communion rite is the culmination of that act of sacrifice, whereby we we enter more deeply into this act of Jesus's self-oblation. You can have a perfectly uh, edifying Mass with the teeniest tiniest of homilies right? And and so, you know, a lot of times Baptists will come to a Mass not knowing what's going on, and they listen to a pretty short and fairly poor homily and think, huh, we do a better job than that, <laughs> because they don't know how to evaluate it, right? That's not how you go about evaluating Mass. I remember one time I went to a liturgy, um, it was actually an Eastern Rite liturgy in the Catholic Church, celebrated by a bi-ritual priest he who celebrated the Roman Rite and an Eastern Rite. Uh-huh. I won't say which one or where it was, so I won't embarrass anybody. And, uh, and this guy, but I will tell you this: it was it was the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom that he was celebrating. I mean, this, this guy just did a rotten job. I mean, he just he did everything he could to to mess it up. His homily was just terrible. I mean, he was just he just really tried hard to mess it up. And I walked away thinking it's really hard to mess up the liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom. Like even the most malicious priest intent on doing the most harm possible could not vitiate the thing. Wow, right, because wow. it was the, that's the point of the liturgy. You know, it's so it's so well constructed uh-huh. to to present to us the mystery of Christ and to conform our lives to Him that even that even a priest who's not operating in the best will uh, really can't mess it up, right? Unless he just deviates altogether from the yeah. rubrics, which he's yeah. not going to do.
3: Sure, appreciate that. April, thanks so much uh, for your email tomorrow morning on more to life with Doctor Greg and Lisa Popcheck. What a great topic this is. Are you going to pieces? Do you feel overworked or burned out, perhaps? Are you struggling to take care of yourself? Well, we will help you find peace. That's tomorrow morning, 10 a.m. Eastern, Mortal Life with Dr. Greg and Lisa Popchak right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to uh, Hannah in uh, British Columbia, listening online, EWTN.com. Hey there, Hannah, what's on your mind today?
0: Oh hi! Um, thanks for um, giving me the chance to ask my question. Um, I was just inquiring about uh, what an office is. What what an office is like a spiritual office. Like I know that priests um, and um, maybe people in higher gifted church would have an office, and fathers and mothers would have an office.
2: That yeah, I understand, yeah, sure. But
0: I I don't know what what is one. Personal office? How would we
4: find it? Where can we get? Resources? Sure, 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 sure. So, so the way we would normally talk about this, the vocabulary that we use in the Catholic Church is we talk about vocation. Um, we you could say office, but vocation has a better ring to it because it um, vocation comes from the Latin word that means to call. And this uh-huh. is a calling on our life, not just something that we are appointed to by some you know arbitrary. Uh, Human authority, but it's Mm -hmm. a calling from God to live a certain form of life ordered to a particular kind of service. And what we find is that there are some stable forms of life in the Catholic Church that are ordered not only to my own salvation, but also to the common good of the Church, to the people of God. And principally, those forms of life, those vocations, are priesthood, religious life, and religious life means people who take take uh, vows and live in a community like monks or nuns or friars or religious sisters, priesthood, religious life, and then the vocation to marriage. And the vocation to marriage, of course, is the vocation to join with a person of the opposite sex um, in a lifelong stable union uh, grounded in some form of sexual cooperation for the purpose of having children and raising a family. And, uh, and, you know, we have to replenish society, including the society of the Church. you got to have new people, you got to have new Catholics. Uh, where the priests come from, come from, you don't have babies. Um, and so it's essential to the well-being of the Church and, and social organization that we have. Uh, that we have uh, the family as a stable form of social organization. Now, the question, how do you discern to which of these you're called? Well, uh, if you're a woman... Um, You can be called to religious life, or you can be called to marriage. You can't be called to priesthood, right? Priesthood is reserved for men. Uh, And so how would you know? Am I called to religious life? Maybe uh, there's another form of organization that a person could be called to, which is consecrated virginity, and that would be not being married, but neither joining a religious community, living on one's own and committing oneself to Christ, or or perhaps a vocation to marriage. Uh, Well, how do you know which one of those you're called to? Uh, well, taking counsel is uh, always necessary for prudent decision making. Spending time with married people, religious people, priests, uh, observing their their mode of life, and of course, uh, what what grabs your attention, what is attractive to you, what you would like to see yourself doing with your time, with your with your love, and how you fit, think you would like to serve. All those things can play into discerning a vocation. Uh, but ultimately, one subjects that determination to the determination of another, right? It's not something that I decide entirely on my own. Like, let's say, for example, when I was a young man, I had decided that it was absolutely my vocation to marry Beth.
3: <laughs>
4: and, uh, and then, you know, I, I submitted that judgment to Beth and said, would you marry me? There was no Beth. I'm just making this up. Sure, sure. And Beth said, uh, Anders... Uh, take a hike, you smell bad, you know, <laughs> like, well, I'm not called to marry Beth, right, Rarely that's enough. fairly obvious, yeah, right, you know, yeah. um, my bishop told me, my previous bishop, I asked him one time, Bishop Robert Baker, I said, <laughs> Bishop, how did you know definitively that you were called to be a priest? He said, my bishop ordained me. Oh. I knew definitively when that happened, right, yeah. you know, it, so the, the judgment, you, you, you bring your own discernment to it, You take counsel, but ultimately uh, that has to be discerned uh, in community with with someone else there, either a potential spouse or uh, superior of a religious community or the bishop of a a diocese.
3: Hannah, thanks for checking in from British Columbia. We're very glad that you're listening to us uh, in Canada on Call to Communion here on EWTN Radio. Going now to Grand Rapids, Michigan, listening to uh, Terry, uh, listening to the great Holy Family Radio today. Terry, what's on your mind today?
0: Um, Hi, I have a question about uh, a tabernacle. I am Catholic. The parish that I belong to has a modern church built in the 70s. Uh, The semicircle, you know, around the altar, minimal statues, deer and antelope on the stained glass windows, no tabernacle. Um, Jesus is in the chapel. Uh, I like to think that he's in a closet. But I did ask over the weekend, the priest, there's only one, is the pastor, uh, whether he had thought of, you know, putting and adding a tabernacle, Uh, and his response was that he knows that some places are doing it, but the bishop has said maybe to withhold on this, and he said it would split his congregation in half. I can't see how Catholics could be split over having the presence of a tabernacle. Do you know anything he said he needed to study more about the theology of the tabernacle? I don't know what, I, I couldn't speak with him any longer, he was in passing you have any insight on sure
4: sure so of course the the strong liturgical preference and this is the mind of the church is that the tabernacle be in a prominent place ideally behind the altar um, visible and accessible for the devotion of the faithful uh, in particular so they can adore the Lord and the Blessed Sacrament right so that's that's the that's the preference um, and, uh, you know, there are churches that don't have that, and, and, you know, they don't have to move at lightning speed to fix that. I mean, that is up to the discernment of the bishop, mm. and that's—he's right. Now, now as to why someone would resist that move, well, uh, for ideological reasons. That's—you know, it's not aesthetic reasons that someone would resist. And so there is an ideology that emerged uh, in the, well, 60s and 70s, to be sure, right on the aftermath of the Council— That emphasized the communal celebration aspect of the Mass, and of course the communal celebration is a very important part of the Mass, but they emphasized that to the detriment of devotion to the Blessed Sacrament itself, to the sacrificial rite or to the doctrine of the Real Presence. And in those who held this ideology, the thinking was that traditional forms of Catholic piety and devotion uh, were overly individualistic, overly clerical, and that they they militated against the communal celebration aspect of the liturgy and and of course that's that 's an ideological position, but it 's one that they put forth. Uh-huh. Um, now you know the, the problem is what happens when you go exclusively in favor of the communal aspect of the celebration and you denigrate the doctrine of the real presence? Is it ultimately becomes schismatic? And and I I know Catholics who are, um, you know, kumbaya singing, um, <laughs> you know, bell bottom wearing, you know, hippie seventy types. Ooh. Of course, now they're they're all like you know pushing ninety, right? Sure. <laughs> um, who who just kumbaya'd their way right out of the church, mm. right? Because when it became only about the social relationship, they began to ask themselves the question: Well, why do we need a pope? Why do we need bishops? Why do we need? uh uh why do we need priests why do we need the sacraments at all we'll just you know we'll just uh stand and gaze lovingly and romantically into one another's eyes and and uh, and say kind words to one another and there's nothing wrong with saying kind words you understand yeah. but uh, but ultimately that that sort of denigrated away from uh the concrete visibility of the church and so um and ended up typically being associated with a lot of other abuses as well so you need both right you you, you have to have devotion to the blessed sacrament as the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, you have to have devotion to the Mass. As the sacrifice of the New Covenant, um, you have to have the uh, the Pope, the bishops, and the priesthood uh, to be. They're like they're like the bones and ligaments of the body of Christ that hold it together in a kind of intelligible organization and maintain the integrity of the faith, um, and are a visible point of unity for the people of God. And you need a robust understanding of the mystical body and that we're all together in this and that it is ultimately about the love of our neighbor and god that's salvific and the sacramental system and the priestly
3: system are there in the service of charity terry thanks so much for your call today here is andrew in Omac, washington listening on the great sacred heart radio andrew what's on your mind today sir
1: hi i'm a longtime listener and
3: uh i just love your show it's helped me explain and understand my faith so much. Thank you. I was hoping you could, uh, you know, clarify uh, a little dispute between my sister and I. She, uh, well, uh, it has to do with confirmation. If a candidate is ready to receive confirmation,
1: who makes that determination? Is that up to the parents solely, or the, or is it up to the bishop or the priest? Thank she cited.
4: You. Yes, it canon- is. It is by no means up to the parents. It is up to the pastor of the parish or to the one to whom the pastor delegates that responsibility. is mm. ultimately the pastor of the parish that de- determines whether a person can be admitted to the sacraments.
3: Okay. Andrew, thanks for your call today from OMAC, Washington. Sounds like a very cool community. Here's a, an email now from Tom who says, Dr. Anders, uh, you often refer to Jesus' discussion of divorce as a way of establishing the allegorical or non-literal reading of the Old Testament. But What about his references to the, quote, days of Noah or of Jonah being three days in the belly of a fish, etc.? It doesn't seem to make sense to use stories to make his points, but rather to reference literal events that the Jews of the day also believed. The position of the Old Testament as mostly allegorical seems to be a way of trivializing or at least not elevating Scripture, which is a stumbling block for a lot of ex-Catholics, including me jesus began his ministry endured temptation and died on the cross quoting scripture that is the old testament so appears to be fairly important to him not just a collection of stories or allegories and that's from tom
4: okay thanks tom there's there's several conceptual confusions here implied by your question um one of them is the suggestion that um i think you said the scripture is mostly allegory in in my point of view Uh, And that's a misconstrual of the Catholic Church's teaching. The Catholic Church teaches that actually it's entirely allegorical, and it's entirely literal. So literal and allegorical are not in opposition to one another in the Catholic scheme of things. And the way St. Thomas put it was this. He said, God is able to, in, in history, to superintend historical events into which he infuses... A meaning that transcends their historical circumstance. Mm. All right, and so the meaning that, when we talk about allegory, we're talking about the way events in the Old Testament um, anticipate, presage, uh, typify realities of the Christian life in Jesus, and that is that is tied to, uh, and it's 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 irreducibly tied to the literal sense of the text. Now. Uh, here's another entailment of the Catholic position. What does literal mean when we talk about the Old Testament? Literal means the sense that the sacred author intended. Okay. Now, sometimes it seems that the sacred author intended to give you a chronicle of historical events. Other times, it seems that the sacred author intended something different. I would argue, for example, that it is in, is highly improbable that the author of the book of Job wrote his text in order to give you the biography of a guy named Job. <laughs> the book is a poetic theodicy. It is a defense of the righteousness of God, in uh, poetical, uh, in face of uh, of horrific evil. What a great suffering.
3: word. What a great word, theodicy. Isn't it a good word? It is. It's a
4: good word. It means defense of God in, okay. in, in respect to evil. All right. All right. So the literal meaning of Job yeah. is is not something that we would go to, say, archaeology to find, right? It's something that is embedded within the poetical language of the text itself. That's what literal means when we're talking about Job. The Psalms the same way. We talk Mm. about the Psalms, these are clearly poets uh, who are conveying spiritual realities in poetic language. The literal sense of the Psalms is their poetry, right? But there are other passages of the Old Testament where we're grounded in historical narrative. All of it is allegorical, and that all of it can be read as a kind of anticipation or, or, or typifying of of the life of Jesus. Um, now, your, your other point, that why would Jesus refer to a, a non-historical narrative in order to illustrate some reality about his own life? Um, of course he would. <laughs> I mean, don't we all do that constantly? Sure. I mean... How many times have you ever related—and look, I'm not trying to trivialize the Bible here. I'm just making a comparison. Um, like, you know, to a movie or a book or a novel that you read or saw. And you say, well, yeah, I had this experience. It was just like what happened to Frodo and Sam in The Lord mm-hmm. of the Rings, right? The fact that Frodo and Sam are fictional characters in no way frustrates their ability to serve as a kind of model for human behavior or insight into human character and moral decision-making, right? That That's what— Fictional narratives are largely intended to do sure right. In fact, to sort of highlight the existential and moral situation of, of human. Whereas, like the actual historical events of my life, like you know pouring a cup of coffee or going to the drink machine, like would seem to be devoid of that kind of profound significance, <laughs> right? Um, so it's this. There's no need for the to be the kind of contrast that you're drawing. I wish I could talk more about this question because it's deeply important, but. Here comes that very literal music at the end of the show. It is
3: is quite literal, and and there's no stopping it. it, Allegorically, it is signaling the end of this show. That is it. Dr. David Anders, thank Thank you, sir. Thank you, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN. Be sure to join us tomorrow for the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. On behalf of our great uh, call screener today, Jack Williams, I'm Tom Price. We will see you then. Have a great day. God bless.